The first reading, or the second reading this morning, is uh, of course from 2 Corinthians. It's in chapter 5, and we are in verse 1 to 8. So that's 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 1 to 8. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for his very purpose, and has given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That is the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us. Now, question for you. Where is your home? Well, there's a considerable difference in asking the question, where do you live, or, and, where is your home? Very different. I think the Bible passage that expresses such difference, probably one of the best, is maybe the one we have in John 17, verse 14, where it says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. These are the words of Jesus. And it is a question we all need to take serious. And we actually need to answer this question. We can't just let it sit. And the passage we have today should help us at least arrive at some sort of conclusion as to where you stand with the Lord. But let us pray. Let us pray for insight and wisdom so we can see what happens here with this passage from Paul. Our loving Father, we come to you to ask that you will indeed open our hearts wide to this message that Paul has written down for us, that you gave him because it is important to us. We pray, Lord, that this will also take seat in our minds, that we will know what changes need to be made in our lives. We pray that you will give us wisdom and insight. In Jesus' name, amen. When we take the time to sit quietly at his feet and ponder these things in our heart, we soon realise that the key to all this and the very essence, indeed, of our understanding rests in the trust that we have in the Lord. Is what he has repeatedly promised us throughout the entire Bible actually true? 
all those things we read about, the promises that he tells us, are they true? And am I willing to place my life and my well-being in his hands? And furthermore, can we trust that he will come back and get me? All of this and our reaction to the world as it develops seems to make this even possibly, if possible, more difficult. But it also, at the same time, then makes it also more important. There is a massive movement afoot around the world that opposes anything, anything that has to do with the Lord. Problem is this. Most of what's happening is masked. It's a masquerade saying one thing but actually seeking something quite different. What they say is not what they want. It is all masked. It is all different. Take the last mass demonstrations we have right around the world and the public upheaval that has come from it. We have groups around the world now called Antifa, or Black Lives Matter, claiming they want equality and justice. They want a fair go for everyone. And when you then go beyond the rhetoric that they use and read what it is that they truly want, you stop and think, what, what really are they all about? What is this all about? What's happening here? Well, if you read a little bit about the aims and the ultimate goals of organisations like these two, you'll find at the very heart of them, you'll find Marxism at its absolute worst. It says, what it means is that if you want to change the economic structure of society, you must first change the cultural institutions that socialise people into believing and behaving according to the dictates of the capitalist system. It gets worse. The only way to do this and achieve that is by cutting the roots of Western civilization, in particularly its Judeo-Christian values. For these are what provides a capitalist root system. In short, the solution. Unless the Western culture is de-Christianized, Western society will never be decapitalized. They simply want to tear the society we live in apart and remove Christ once and for all. That's what these two groups want. No doubt some of you are now questioning, why is Carl going so on about this? Why, indeed? Well, for me, the simple reason is this. If you feel comfortable in this world and the direction that this world is actually heading, then I fear for your faith and the values that you hold. That's simple. If the very thought of a world without Christ is one where you can thrive and live and you think you can find peace and happiness then your answer to my opening question, I afraid, will be very different to mine. When Paul wrote these lines under the hand of the Lord, his life was also in constant peril. The world around him at that time wanted him dead. 
The world around him wanted his message of hope and peace eradicated. This was spelt out clearly by Paul when we're going to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. That's the life that Paul was leading 2,000 years ago. Not that different to what we have today. The world of his day did not want Christ. And the world you live in here today does not want Christ. That's why we need and we read the next is so incredibly important to our understanding and therefore also in the way we live our lives day to day. So starting in verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. See, God the Father, hence also Paul, doesn't want you to be fearful of death. To the non-believer, death is the final, the end point of everything. But to a true believer, death is the beginning of life, a beginning of real life, eternal life, without fear, without sin, without tears. So when Paul writes that the house is not built by human hands, he simply assures us that this new house, this new body, is made and built by the Spirit of God. It is our reborn bodies in Christ, our resurrected bodies, without faults, without blemish. No sickness. At the same time, he also reminds us that whilst we are still here, there will be suffering. In verse 2, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. What we receive here from Paul is building on what we heard from last week in the last week's sermon in chapter 4.16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And hence we fix our eyes on what is, not, not, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. See, all our worldly possessions, all our worldly problems and sufferings are but temporal to us. We are given four points in this passage that are of interest to us. We should be looking at our new body. We'll be looking at our new life with that new body and our new existence in the new place we will be with our home. And then finally, we will look at that dwelling, that place that we will dwell for eternity. He writes in verse 1 that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, 
if it merely refers to the situation if he was to die before Christ came back. Paul is talking about it. He's obviously hoped that he would live and see the return of Christ, which we all do. But the if not, then he would still be given a new body. But that is the same as what he writes into the Philippian letter. He writes in 123, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is not necessary for you that I re- it is necessary for you that I remained in the body. See, Paul knew full well and accepted that there were still many things for him to do in the service of Christ. So he knew there was more to be done. And the same for you and me. We have the same. You and I must accept this fact that we are here and living today still because there's more for you and I to do. We still have purpose in God. What we can be certain of, however, is that Christ will call us home when his time is right. And when you and I will have perfect bodies, eternal bodies, made by his spirit, which then brings us to this perfect life that we're going to lead. And by the way, when Paul says that when I'm robed with my eternal life, I won't be found naked. It is the difference between when we die and go to heaven as a soul and wait for the return of Christ when then our resurrected bodies will come with us. That's the difference. Verse 4, For while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What Paul does mean here by using unclothed is in other words naked he speaks of the time lag as I just talked about between our death and the passing into heaven and the time of the return of Christ when we then receive our new and resurrected bodies he just wants the Christ to come Paul in those 2000 years ago just knew that his entire life was a desire to be with Christ Paul's deepest desire is to live his new life with Christ in heaven. And we do not get what that life will be like. We're not told in specifics what the life will be like, certainly not in detail, other than knowing that that place and that life will be perfect. And what we also are told, of course, we can read in Revelation when John writes about what heaven looks like, but still lacks detail for us to understand. So when we then turn to our next, the existence, we're dealing with both our current as well as our next of the final uh, existence. Verse 5, Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and he has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So it's not a maybe or a possibility, it is a guarantee that what we're coming is an eternal life with him, resurrected in heaven. Let me refer you to Paul's writing in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to his likeness of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that he is predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's the promise. Our existence will be with him in glory, in an existence in perfection and in peace. I mean, if you don't want that, you need a psychiatrist. And this finally brings us to the fourth point, that of our next and final dwelling with God. Verse 6, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. Paul is here describing the absolute pinnacle of the expectations and anticipation of what is to come. He has an incredible understanding of this. And he just wants you and I to have the same. Right from the day on the road to Damascus, he's been looking forward to his new and glorified body as well as the perfection of heaven. That's all he aims for. And the question is, of course, do you have that same anticipation stirring your heart each day? That same longing that Paul is describing, that longing to be with Christ in heaven. Do you have that every morning, every day, as you read his word? And Paul looked forward to the fulfillment of God's plan for him. See, the therefore, at the start of verse 6, naturally refers us back to the first five verses. Those verses and the truth contained in them is very much part of the courage and him being always being of good courage even when he was facing death and suffering. Do we have that sort of courage even though we are despairing of this world and the suffering that's going on? Do we have that courage through Christ? One point to remember here is that his courage isn't some temporal feeling or simply some passing emotion. To Paul, this was a permanent state of mind. It was every day, every hour. We know from reading this letter to Philippians, written when he was chained in a dungeon in Rome, he's literally awaiting death. He knows it's coming. In verse 1-4 in Philippians, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. He's about to die and he just finds joy in prayer and your life. He's filled with joy even as he's facing death because he knows that life is not about him but with a purpose for him in Christ. He knows this. The theme of confidence and courage appears throughout Paul's writings. Everything God ever gave him has got this focus, this theme. In his second letter to Timothy, he writes, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the same time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I've finished a race. I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. How wonderful is this stuff? Let me remind you of verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. Living is not about your life here and now, but about what you can do for Christ in response to what he has already done for you so that you can have a life with him eternally in heaven. Our focus Your focus is to be on the unseen now that you see here, not what you see here every day. For reality of death faces every believer who dies before the return of the Lord. It's going to happen to most of us. Those who look forward to receiving their glorified bodies to the perfection of life in heaven and the fulfillment of God's purpose for them, as well as living forever in his presence, will obviously be able to join with Paul and say with great confidence as he did, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Will you, like Paul and so many other saints after him, also rejoice in the full knowledge of the redemptive suffering of our Saviour, Lord Jesus Christ. You need to answer the question, where is your home? And live like it. Let's pray. Our loving and gracious Father, merciful as you are, we come before you today, Lord, to ask that you will indeed guide us Guide us closely by your spirit. Awaken us to the truth that in your scriptures that is so clearly stated for all of us to read and for your spirit to open these words to us in a meaningful way that we will understand that there are changes required. We pray, Lord, that you may bless us with both wisdom and this wonderful desire just to be with your son and yourself. May you indeed bless us, Lord, with this great love for your son that loved us first. It is in his name we pray. Amen.